This morning, we have three readings which are somewhat loosely tied to the theme for today as found in the Collect. Grant, O merciful God, that your church, being gathered together in unity by your Holy Spirit, may show forth your power among all peoples to the glory of your name. First up, from the book of Exodus, is a continuation of a somewhat breathless dash through the history of early Israel in the Pentateuch. Last week, we had the conclusion of the Joseph story, and this week we take up the story of Moses as we hear of the events that led to his birth and his surviving Pharaoh's edict of death for all newborn Hebrew male children. The time is at the beginning of the 19th dynasty under Seti I and Ramses II. Ramses II reigned from 1290 to 1224, so we're talking the 13th century BC. Hoping to rebuild Egypt's lost empire in Asia, the pharaohs moved their capital from Thebes, where it had been during the 18th dynasty, to the Delta at a city named for Ramses. The store cities mentioned in the reading were fortifications to protect the new capital. They were being built with forced labor. The Egyptians were in dread of the Hebrews, a tiny minority and one of many. Pharaoh therefore decides to oppress the Hebrews. His aim is to keep the people as an economic asset while avoiding a threat to Egypt's security. He hopes that hard labor will break their spirit and stop their rapid growth. Here we get a hint of the dramatic action that is to come. The fruitfulness of the Hebrews is a mark of divine promise. In seeking to destroy it, Pharaoh enters into conflict with the God of Israel. He is determined that Israel shall not escape from the land. This introduces the story of the Exodus and creates a proper mood for it. The greater the Egyptian oppression, the greater were the signs of God's promise. We can take this as part of a divine comedy. The efforts of the Egyptians must have made God smile. The oppression wasn't working. More than ever, the Egyptians were in dread of the Hebrews. There was something eerie and unnerving about this people. Feeling that further drastic action was imperative, Pharaoh directed that every male child born to the Hebrews was to be cast into the Nile. This, it was hoped, would restrain their fruitfulness. With that scene set, we are introduced to Moses, whom we are told was of the tribe of Levi, the priestly class of Israel. Through a series of events that can only be ascribed to divine intervention. Moses is born, nurtured until he can no longer be hid, and floated in a basket on the Nile where he is found by Pharaoh's daughter. 
she recognizes him as a child of the Hebrews. How could it be that one of the maidens attending Pharaoh's daughter was none other than Moses' older sister, Miriam? Can you say divine intervention? God chuckles yet again. Pharaoh's daughter directs Miriam to fetch a woman from the Hebrews to nurse Moses. Read, raise him. Of course, Miriam goes straight to her mother and brings her to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, who hands Moses over to her to raise him for her. By this time, God must be doubled over laughing. In due time, his mother handed Moses over to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him and gave him the name Moses, which comes from a Hebrew word meaning to draw out. Thus, Moses is the one who draws forth. As a deliverer of his people, he must belong to Israel as well as to Egypt. And the bond with Israel is the more profound because he was raised by a Hebrew mother. Pharaoh's daughter has the gift of humaneness, which she shows by disobeying the edict of her father of death for all the Hebrew children, Hebrew male children. This is at once humane and religious. The pagan princess fears God as well. With the survival of Moses, the slaughter of the innocents is a failure. The birth stories of Jesus and John the Baptist owe much to the stories of Moses' infancy. The princess who disobeys her father and the magi who ignore Herod play the same role. This passage relates to the theme for today because the beginning of the Moses story sets the stage for the people of Israel, the forerunners of the church, to show forth one of the most spectacular displays of God's power ever to that time, the Exodus. Moving to the passage from Romans, St. Paul is appealing to his readers to render sacrifice to God in an entirely new way. He appeals to them to, quote, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, close quote. The word to focus on is living. Paul wants us to offer our living bodies, our lives, as a sacrifice. This is in sharp contrast to the sacrifices of slain animals practiced by cults of the time. The main point of sacrifice, even in Old Testament times, was not the death of the victim, but in the offering of life to God. With animal sacrifices, this could only happen by slaying the beast and presenting its blood, but St. Paul sees 
that the truest sacrifice we can offer to God is that of living according to his will. St. Paul also admonishes his readers not to be, quote, conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, close quote. That is, we are not to live by the dictates of the age in which we find ourselves, but rather to live as though the new age had already come. To do this involves a complete reorientation, which only the spirit who represents the new age can bring about. He does this by renewing our mind, that is, by giving a new life and power to our mind. Even though Paul rarely uses the word repentance, he comes close here. Because repentance means change of mind. The verb transform, as it is here associated with mind, suggests the idea of repentance. But the emphasis, as always, is not on the human act, but on the Spirit's gift. St. Paul has here given the church two ways to show the power of God. By making our lives living sacrifices, and by conducting ourselves not as the present age does, but as the new age ushers the way, by transforming our mind. We now turn to the reading from St. Matthew's Gospel. The scene is the vicinity of the town of Caesarea Philippi, a town at the source of the Jordan River and a center of pagan worship. Jesus inquires of the apostles who the people say that he is. They come up with the names of three great prophets, John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah. Elijah was widely expected to return as a herald of the coming of the Messiah. On the other hand, there is nothing in Jewish tradition to associate Jeremiah with the Messianic age. Matthew probably names him here because he is one of the greatest prophets. But Jesus is not satisfied with this answer. He now drills deeper and asks, But who do you say that I am? Peter, ever the impetuous one, blurts out, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is one of those times when I'm sure Father Brewer would tell you how you can impress your friends with your biblical literacy. If you want to amaze and impress your friends, you can refer to this quote, as the Petrine Confession. That is because Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus' response is to say, quote, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, close quote. Flesh and blood 
are often used in Jewish writing to mean humanity as contrasted with divinity. For example, St. Paul says that when, quote, God was pleased to reveal his son to me, I did not confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Close quote. That is, he did not receive his gospel from Peter and James or any other man, but from God. Here, the church has found that Peter also received his gospel and apostleship, not through flesh and blood, but by direct divine revelation. Jesus then goes on to say, quote, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Close quote. I'm sure you recall that the Bible is full of plays on words, and this is one of them. Peter in Greek is Petros, and rock in Greek is Petra. It has been suggested that Jesus gave Peter the name rock to teach him that he must be firm and unwavering, whereas up to this point he has been hesitant and undecided. The keys of the kingdom would be committed to the chief steward of the royal household, and with them went great authority. The Matthaean church is beginning to ascribe to the apostles the prerogatives of Jesus. In rabbinical language, to bind and to loose is to declare certain actions forbidden or permitted. Thus, Peter's decisions about the Old Testament law will be ratified in heaven. Later Christian tradition extended this principle to include the power to forgive and retain sins. In John's Gospel, the post-resurrection Jesus breathed on his apostles and said, quote, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Close quote. However, this is not the original meaning of the passage in our reading this morning. But it wasn't long before this power to bind and to loose was viewed as being held by all the apostles, not just Peter. Later still, this power was found to be held by all bishops, the successors of the apostles. Finally, Jesus admonishes his apostles to tell no one that he is the Christ. This is another example of what is called the messianic secret, another turn to amaze your friends. 
It refers to Jesus' frequently expressed desire to not broadcast the fact of his Messiahship. What greater way is there to show forth God's power among all peoples than to possess the keys of the kingdom and the power to bind and to loose? We have heard three examples of ways that the church shows forth the power of God to all peoples. We have the very beginning of the story of the Exodus, one of the greatest displays of God's power to that time. We have St. Paul showing the Roman church how to comport itself so as to show the world what it means to be a Christian, thereby showing forth God's power. And we have the Petrine Confession and the power to bind and to loose that was conferred on Peter immediately afterward. That's some pretty impressive power that resided within the church, which the church shows to the world. So as you go about your daily lives, don't be limited by what this current age expects you to do. As St. Paul teaches, embrace the new age, live in the spirit, and show the world the power of God that is in your life here and now. You have the power. Amen.